Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. Hello, and welcome to From Queer to Eternity, a podcast exploring what it means to us to be queer. My name's Scott Hancock, and every episode I'll be chatting to a different guest from the LGBTQ community, talking about their lives, experiences, and what queerness means to them, and hopefully discovering just how much we all have in common. Due to the nature of these conversations, certain themes, phrases, or experiences discussed may be upsetting for some of our listeners, but generally we're here to celebrate queerness in all its forms, and have a good time sharing our stories. This episode, I'll be chatting with... Emily Garside. So Emily, hello. Hello. <laughs> it feels very weird chatting to you, given we're literally in the same city almost, but uh, lockdown means completely different sides. Yeah. <laughs> I never really met either, so uh, even more exciting. It is, and especially in a sort of relatively small town like Cardiff, particularly a small <laughs> arts town like Cardiff, mm. it's a miracle when you find someone you've never actually run into. I'll begin with the question I've been asking everyone, which is, uh, what does the term queer mean to you? Oh, it's such a good question as well. Um, to me, it, it means lots of different things. Um, it's a term I've adopted as sort of a descriptor of myself mm. later, sort of later in life, almost. I think when I was growing up, it was more of an, an insult word, but I've kind of loved embracing it as sort of reclaiming it. And for someone who maybe doesn't feel like they fit the mould of certain sectors of like the community or whatever or neatly labelled and stuff like that it's a nice catch-all term as well that I can use um, and then also thinking about sort of culture like queer culture it feels like a nice way of describing everyone and everything rather than going oh we have to have like lesbians in one corner and gay men in another and <laughs> nobody can play with each other <laughs> like yes. it feels like it's becoming at least for a lot of people that kind of term as well so how would you define yourself specifically if you had to narrow it down um i always used to use bisexual because that was like the word i learned growing up mm. and then i've sort of leaned into using pansexual interchangeably just because it it's a nice word as well and it seems to fit um so yeah i think whatever definition you want that encompasses the you know attraction to all people of all genders and there's so many debates over it and it's actually really boring in some ways but for a sort of an identity that actually just kind of goes I don't mind it's all fine I suppose bisexual is very much traditionally just male or female isn't it was now particularly in the last decade the understanding of gender issues and and the inclusion of the trans community and everything like that has just made people a lot more aware. Yeah, exactly. And for me, I think that's why I started shifting towards using pansexual as well, because in my mind, I never felt like I was excluding anyone with that label. I was just sort of going along for the ride of, yeah, like everyone, everyone's fine by me. Um, but then also realising that some people do feel excluded by, by that or feel like you're saying that you're excluding them. It just feels like, oh, well, if it doesn't matter to me, 
I might as well use that label then. And that's equally a fitting label for, for, for what I feel on the matter. So I'm happy with both. And that's sort of also why I use queer as well, because it kind of encompasses a bit of everything for me as well. And it encompasses things, not that I wildly sort of identify with any sort of different gender gender identities to the one I was born with. But equally, if you're thinking about like traditional ideas of what gender looks like and things like that, I think queer also helps with that expression sometimes as mm. well. I think what's also really lovely about chatting to you, and we'll touch on this later, is I think you're our first academic on this Ooh, podcast as well. It'll be interesting to have an authority on it. <laughs> No pressure. No, no pressure whatsoever. But just going back to sort of you personally and setting the scene, I'm curious, what was your sort of childhood like? Where did you grow up? Was it a sort of fairly liberal upbringing you had? Oh, this, this is quite hilarious because I'm in my childhood home right now. Um, the joys I, of lockdown. The, the joys of lockdown. And the view from, from my front window is of the Conservative Club across the road. So I think you could maybe take from that... <laughs> what you will you're on the fringes of cardiff maybe rather than the city center <laughs> yes uh... <laughs> um i'm not in you know cool cates or anything like that right now <laughs> but sort of yeah joking aside about the lovely view of the conservative club that i have i went to quite a i think the fair it's fair to say rough school under section 28 as well so it wasn't exactly the most you know LGBTQ friendly environment in that sense to grow up in. And I just think that I didn't really know much about being queer or gay or whatever in that time other than it being used as an insult. I suppose the interesting thing is growing up in that time everyone raised their kids to be effectively straight because mm. there wasn't the education. So when did you first have an inkling that yeah you had an interest in the same sex? I remember talking about it in sort of sixth form sort of time to friends and but not in a sort of very in-depth way I remember sort of making comment about being bi and like one of the, the lads in school making some kind of lewd comment because obviously that's what 17 year old straight lads are like as well um, not all of them obviously but particularly in the sort of late 90s and I sort of remember talking about it then but not really analysing it so I guess it was later when I was in uni that I became more aware that I was sort of not straight and kind of I think by then thought about like joining LGBT society in uni but I don't think I ever quite did or if I did I didn't really go to anything because mm. I was also I was also really shy and awkward as a teenager anyway so just went no I'm not going to go and join that but then sort of gradually through uni embraced that more. Was there any point when you were growing up when you thought you know that traditional thing of oh this will just be a phase and I think yeah I didn't I don't remember consciously thinking I needed to like not be if that makes sense I remember mm. thinking that people thought it was a bad thing and things like that but thinking as well that almost like I guess because I'm very lucky in some respects that I pass, which is a horrible expression, but like pass for straight or I could, you know, because I could I would date any gender. I could also be dating a guy and that would be acceptable. Um, but also I just wasn't dating very much as a teenager. No. <laughs> so, And, you know, anything you any dating you did do wasn't particularly exciting anyway. So it kind of wasn't an issue. I recently was talking to someone I went to school with, actually, and we both just sort of agreed that there was just nobody we were interested in dating of any gender <laughs> in our school. Um, you know, present company of our of our friendship aside, we were just kind of like, mm, no, it just it just wasn't a thing we wanted to do then, and that was kind of okay as well. Um, 
And then you get to uni and it's a bit of a, you know, sometimes drunken haze during sort of freshers mm. and stuff like that. And um, yeah, I don't remember it being an issue there either, sort of in terms of any f- new friends I made. And I don't know that I talked about it that openly in my, certainly my first few years of uni, but I don't remember being worried about talking about it either. Again, sort of looking back at your school days and, and particularly under Section 28, when it wasn't really addressed in any way, even even on the fringes. Um did you sort of find yourself looking for your own education into things? Or do you think you'd have maybe explored things earlier if it had been more openly presented at school? Oh, definitely. Um, this was something I was talking about when I was teaching this week, actually, because I was talking about um, young adult novels and kind mm. of the amount of sort of representation that is in those today. And one of my students actually brought this up and said, oh, I can't imagine growing up under section 28 seeing these in my school library like that it's just unthinkable to me and I kind of I had to agree that yeah there was just no no sense of any you know any novel I even don't even know if I'm thinking now did we even study Oscar Wilde and did we know that he was gay (laughs) like anything just all of those kind of things just completely absent well we wouldn't have had the internet either that's the thing there was no no way of finding out about this stuff I guess Exactly. And I kind of think, you know, it is with sort of a little bit of envy, I look at younger generations and go, oh, wow, like, you can just Google this stuff. and Like, it's there. Oh, but you know, in a way, I'm quite glad, because I think if we Googled this stuff back in the day, with what is on the internet now, it would have been terrifying. It would have been. And kind of the sort of the slower pace of figuring some of this stuff out, I think, was helpful in the long term um, in many ways and kind of I feel like again when I went to uni and I started you know reading more widely out of sort of you know other than what was just on my A-level assignments and stuff like that I think I started almost accidentally finding things and you start watching like TV and film that's out of you know just what your parents are telling you you can watch and stuff like that so I think it was a much more gradual process rather than, like you say, yeah, if I was just able to Google some of this stuff at 15 or something, it might have been mildly terrifying back in the day. I'm quite interested in the bisexual experience specifically as well, because in a way, I think, you know, stereotypically people think, oh, well, you've got the best of every world. You're, you're quite greedy. <laughs> I'm sort of curious if you've experienced any prejudice from men and women in different ways or whether there's a very definite attitude that certain types of people have to bisexuality or pansexuality yeah definitely and I think it's really different from different sort of areas and I think men and women get it in different ways as well I think so you get the idea of kind of from sort of straight friends or like straight people as, as a group kind of going oh yeah well that's it's just experimentation you know you'll you'll settle down eventually and kind of I don't know sometimes if they depending on what I feel their judgment is sometimes I think they're going oh yeah but you're really gay aren't you or Mm. oh yeah you you know you'll stop messing around and find a husband eventually and it'll all be fine and that sort of dismissive nature and I I see it with friends who you know who are women who have who are bisexual who have married a male partner and who get really dismissed in that sense as well of kind of like, oh, well, you know, you weren't really queer. You weren't really bi because you, you married a man. It's like, well, that's the definition of it. Like, mm. it could have been any gender. And then also there's, I don't think I've personally had it in anyone that I've sort of dated or anything like that in terms of, 
other women being dismissive. But, um, you know, on a personal level, they've always been quite accepting and that's been lovely. But I've definitely had it from sort of the lesbian community, either one-on-one sort of saying things to me that were kind of like, oh, it's not a real sexuality or you're not really part of us type thing, or just knowing that that was the gen- their general feeling. Mm. Um, I did, I had, I won't name the very, very low level influencer, <laughs> um, but someone I know became like a lesbian influencer at one point um, and was setting up a kind of dating I don't know whether it was a service or like some kind of dating part of what they did. Um, And they told me outright I couldn't be involved because I wasn't a lesbian and they were only looking for lesbians. And I was just kind of like, really? And this wasn't that long ago, kind of, you know, it's that kind of artificial lines of Mm. kind of drawing it and kind of little things like that uncover what people really think. And especially if it it was someone like that who had a bit of a platform as well you're kind of going, oh, you're not doing the community any favours, are you, really? I find it curious for a community where, you know, I think everyone's experienced some kind of prejudice at some point, that there's still a lack of empathy (laughs) in certain quarters. I don't know why that is. Yeah, I sort of, I was writing something recently and I was trying to sort of find the words for exactly that because it's that thing of, to my mind, you kind of go, if you've experienced prejudice from, like, the wider world and, like, the sort of status quo of how things Mm. are supposed to be, surely you just embrace anyone who is experiencing similar, which is why I can never get my head around sort of, you know, people who are really dismissive of the trans community or aren't doing everything they can to support trans people because Mm. you kind of go... 20 years ago, that was... Yeah. (laughs) You kind of go, okay, we've, you know, we've managed to, you know, claw our way up a little bit and, you know, things are looking better. Well, surely you just like reach down and help people along with you like especially when you've experienced discrimination it just it really blows my mind in in so many ways um, mm. and equally the sort of idea the resistance to learning in that respect so when people are really sort of resistant to things like different pronouns and stuff like that I'm kind of like well you want people to adopt your labels as a gay person or whatever you know whatever that is like why is it so hard to embrace the other sets of labels it, it's just really puzzling to me in that sense yes I, I wonder if there's a sort of sense of embarrassment of it of, mm. of just sort of making a mistake that some people just mm. go I'd rather own my ignorance than try <laughs> yeah. and just keep cocking up yeah and it's a really hard thing obviously to say that you're wrong about something and to you know embrace that you need to to do some learning but it's like you say it's just kind of that thing of if you find yourself on the fringes of, of something, then surely you want to help other people who are in a similar situation. But people are strange sometimes. <laughs> well, I'm sort of hoping this podcast will provide lots of different viewpoints mm. from different areas of the LGBTQ spectrum and, and hopefully show how much everyone has in common, regardless mm. of sexuality or gender or ethnicity. Or... Yeah, exactly. I'm curious as well on on something you mentioned there about people dismissing bisexual people being in a, a straight sort of marriage. Do you ever feel invisible in a way as a bisexual person if you happen to be in a straight relationship? Yeah, definitely. Because it's that thing of like, we almost you almost just feel like you've been immediately absorbed into like, straight society Mm. and um i think by now um because i you know i'm still single in that sense that i've 
I've sort of established myself as quite out and proud and loud about it. Mm. So I don't think directly in sort of people that I know that that would necessarily happen anymore. But certainly I, I was very conscious when I was younger of like, oh, you know, if I'm 20 something and I, I settle down with this guy now, um, everyone's going to assume I'm straight for the rest of my life. And that that's not true. But equally, you get a very sort of straight until proven otherwise attitude anyway yes. in life. So it's really difficult if you are then in a relationship, you know, with a man as a sort of bisexual woman kind of going, go, oh, yes, but kind of thing. And you don't want to start like dinner party conversations with like, yes, but no. this woman I dated, in, <laughs> you know, but it's that thing of kind of, I guess you're doing the same thing that you're doing when you're in, you know, a gay relationship of mentioning sort of former partners and making a point of stating their gender, which is hard work sometimes. <laughs> I think that's it. I think a lot of gay people particularly often feel they have to announce their sexuality, you know, just so the cab driver doesn't ask about your girlfriend or yeah. something like that. You're, you're constantly coming out to people. I mean, yeah. I imagine for someone who's bisexual, pansexual, how is the coming out process? Yeah, it's a really tricky one in that, you know, it's that thing of going things I'm thinking now of like, you know, sort of wider family and stuff like that. It, for me, was sort of almost easier to just go, oh, you know what? Yeah, unless I'm in a long term relationship with, with a woman, then we won't, we'll save ourselves the drama, mm. which feels like almost cheating my identity a bit. And like, I probably wouldn't do that now, but when you're younger as well, you just go, oh, do you know what? There's enough drama in my life, maybe. Yeah. Maybe I just save myself the bother. And equally with sort of friends, like, like you say, it's that thing, you're constantly coming out regardless of, you know, how you identify. And sometimes it was just easier to let people assume either that, you know, that you're straight or gay, depending on, depending on the circumstances. Because you sometimes just feel like, oh, are they going to understand what that means? Uh, you know, and I think people have got a lot better at that. Um, mm. There's a lot more visibility. But certainly thinking like 10 years ago, just kind of going, oh, do you know what? It's probably not worth it. <laughs> like, and as someone who like maybe wasn't like dating that much anyway, just kind of going like, oh, do you know what? It's exactly what you said. Like, oh, when there's something to tell, I will tell people. And obviously people close to me new and things like that and you know that was a set of very you know very different conversations depending on the person but ultimately like in everyday life sometimes it was just easier apart from occasionally um like getting drunk with work colleagues in my 20s and like announcing it drunkenly and stupid mm. things like that but it's that constant kind of like oh am I gonna have to explain am I gonna be like quizzed about it is it you know is it is it worth it sometimes yeah that that phrase is it worth it suggests a sort of apprehension were you expecting a negative reaction i think sometimes yeah i think like the thing of like casual people like work acquaintances and stuff like that you just think ah oh, you know it's it's probably not worth causing a drama with the you know the older guy from the corner of the office who is already mm. you know called called things gay in a derogatory way and all of that and equally, I found myself sometimes in, I'm thinking of a sort of like a choir I was in, for example, who were just very heterosexual, for want of a better way to describe it. And you just sort of go, oh, do you know what? Maybe it's like, I see these people once a week for a couple of hours. Maybe it's not worth delving into at this point and mm. all of that kind of stuff. And I think, again, as I've got older and as well, it's been a weird thing for me because of my work being like fairly public as an academic and things like that it's got harder and harder to be in any kind of closet because it's sort of out there <laughs> if you google me and, and yes the minute you start working on 
you know, LGBT plus stuff, you get the questions about, you know, your own sexuality. So I think since I've been doing that and the more and more sort of other sort of public sort of face to what I do, this had to be, it's, I'm, I'm less worried about it as well because I'm like, well, it's out there. I put up with nonsense from people on social media all the time. It's, I might as well have the conversation in real life with people as well. What sort of nonsense on social media? I mean, I'm always intrigued by social media and how people <laughs> feel they have, you know, free reign to just spout whatever Say what they, they feel. Want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had, oh, just this week again. It, and these are the kind of things that just roll off my back now because it's always just some faceless, usually a man, to be honest. But hmm. um, I'd so accidentally wrote a, a tweet that got really popular about Alison Bechtel's um, comic where the Bechtel test that we use in sort of film about women talking to women and stuff like that came from. And it just like took off a little bit, like not completely viral or anything, but it had a you know fair bit of attention. Um, and some man was in the mentions accusing me of brainwashing immediately. And I was kind of like, really? And also kind of something about, was it necessary to teach? And I I did answer him in the first instance because I was like, well, on an LGBTQ plus literature course, I kind of thought it was necessary to teach about lesbian writers. I don't know why. Mm. Um, and was kind of like, you know, leaning into being a bit sarcastic to him and stuff like that. But it's just... I've been quite lucky and I've never had a lot of sort of outright horrible hate and things like that. And I've been really lucky in that respect. But you just get the, you know, those little comments like that all the time, which sort of like wear you down eventually of just like, oh, here's another one. Right. OK. You know, what are they telling me today is wrong that I'm doing and that sort of thing. I'm curious as well, uh, sort of growing up in the rough side of Cardiff, yeah. shall we say, did you know any other queer people or do you remember the first time you actually met someone queer and identified with them? Um, I definitely don't think I knew anyone. I mean, I obviously would. There was obviously Statistically, other kids in my yeah. school. Like, they must have been out there. Um, but I don't know where they were. Um, like, you look back, I'm not really in contact with anyone in my for my sort of first five years of high school because then I moved schools um, and just sort of lost touch with people. But... I do often wonder, I was like, oh, yeah, what, what did happen to any of those? And were any of the, those, like, the other queer kids? And even in school, so the friend I mentioned earlier, actually, like, neither of us knew that we were, were bisexual at the time and kind of we never discussed it. Another girl who I was good friends with in sort of sixth form, I know, um, is, is gay as well. And kind of like we never talked about that. It just never it was never a thing that came up. I think the first people I knew must have been in uni and there was um, certainly at least one gay man I remember meeting who was of quite a few years older because he was doing a postgrad, but he was in a choir I was in at uni and I remember knowing that he was sort of like out and proud and gay. And then one of my housemates was also gay um, and so those are the first sort of queer people I met. And also the first time I sort of you know, went to any sort of queer events. So I went to, you know, gay bars in town, not necessarily because they were gay bars, probably just because that's where we stumbled to during the course of a night out and stuff. And then sort of the first, probably the first actual sort of collective gay event I went to was when I did my third year in Canada. So I moved to Montreal and I went to Gay Pride about two weeks after I moved there, mainly because that it was just what was happening in the city and my housemates went there. And that was the first sort of groups of gay people that I met through sort of housemates and the people I'd met in my first couple of weeks there. So it wasn't really until I moved away from home that I encountered any kind of sense of like what 
what gay people could look like in real life almost. And did you embrace the scene when you found it or were you still a bit sort of dipping the toe in? Probably just like, yeah, on the on the fringes of it. I think because I've always been around sort of performing arts type stuff, particularly since I left school anyway, that sort of feels like being part of that community because it's a place that I think a lot of queer people gravitate to naturally mm. as well. So it was kind of that thing of being part of a scene but not quite part of a scene as well um and just sort of yeah knowing a fair few people who identified as 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 gay or bi or whatever kind of felt like there was a community without having to look to look for a community and then sort of never felt that at home seeking out like an actual gay scene but maybe that's also because of the places I was living in didn't necessarily have that sort of like I, I went to uni in Nottingham which is not I don't think known for having a massive gay village or no, anything you pr- like you probably that. have to have a pilgrimage to Birmingham or yeah exactly sort of you know I think there was like two gay bars that I knew of so it wasn't like I was spending every uni night out you know hanging out on the equivalent of Canal Street or something like that what, what did you study at university um I did for my undergrad I did American studies with history I still to this day don't know why I mean (laughs) at at 17 you sort of stick a pin in a map right Mm. (laughs) and kind of go yeah that'll do um but essentially was doing sort of a film studies degree along with my history degree which was quite fun and then I came back from Canada and I spent a year messing around in theatre out there which was great fun and then I did my master's in theatre and I went to King's College in RADA and did a strange joint degree with uh, master's degree with them before I eventually ended up doing sort of research into theatre and and that sort of stuff so a very strange sort of meandering path to what I ended up doing really. Oh, hello you. My name's Tom Price. Hello, I'm Dave Cribb. You should come and join us every day. We do a podcast called Cabin Fever, where we talk to loads of comedians who've had to cancel everything else in their lives. So they come on our podcast instead, don't they, Dave? Yeah, it's an isolation podcast. Uh, Dave, were you yawning at the start of that sentence then? Was it just a little yawn? Yeah, it's basically the Great Big Owl isolation podcast. We'll have people on from all our podcasts, from your Rule of Threes, your Brian Rogers, your Musicals, your Bitchins. If you like any of our podcasts, if you like any of those people, chances are they'll be logging onto the Zoom call and just chatting because, let's face it, they got nothing else to do. Also, there'll be a quiz on the bill. All right, see you soon. Lots of love. Cabin F-E-A-3709. Oh, 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 that's our Twitter name. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello. 
In terms of your academia, a lot of your work has focused on LGBT issues mm. in theatre and most recently a PhD in the use of theatre as a sort of cultural response to the AIDS crisis? Yep. So I, again, on that meandering path, ended up just somehow knowing that's what I wanted to research. So I wasn't, I, I knew I wanted to do a PhD, but I also wasn't someone who was just going to do one on whatever, like, you know, someone offered me. Like, that was always really what I was trying to do a PhD in, which I can't really explain ever other than a love of the, um, a couple of the plays. So I ended up specialising or sort of using as a case study Jonathan Larson's musical Rent and Tony Kushner's play Angels in America hmm. as my sort of main case study. And it was a falling in love with those pieces of work and then sort of seeing the links between them as, as responses to AIDS, their different approaches to sort of representing uh, the LGBTQ community and things like that, that sort of led me to, to what I ultimately ended up doing. Because I guess just being a natural researcher as well sort of went, oh, what else has been written about this? What other plays are there? All of that kind of thing. Um, and sort of stumbled into it that way, probably then through a, a sort of want to do something about LGBTQ experience and all of that, but not quite, you know, no, not having a set path as to how I was going to do that. I'm curious how, as an academic, your sort of materials have developed Mm. over recent years from sort of historic pieces to more up and current pieces happening now yeah it's it's been a real fascinating ride in that respect um so i start i would have started my phd sort of bang on 10 years ago now mm. and sort of what i was using then was exactly that the historic plays more than tv and film even um if i think about like my own research into sort of things that represent AIDS, it's that thing of like, oh, well, we had Philadelphia with Tom Hanks, you know, from back in the day, the one everyone knows. Some quite obscure, like, quote unquote, gay films that were just on at like film festivals and stuff like that, that sort of were around. And then it was mainly sort of plays and novels that I was able to sort of dig into and use. And it was really difficult sort of to find material to talk about beyond the very small core of plays that I was sort of analysing. Um, there's a TV version of Angels in America. There was, in the works, by the time I was in the middle of my PhD, the film of Rent and stuff like that. But again, you're talking sort of much older works and that sort of thing. And nothing really to compare them to in the sort of contemporary TV and film landscape that was useful when I mm. started my work as well. So, you know, I'd naturally find myself contextualizing stuff by referring to queer as folk which is what like was 22 years old this week so it was already like 12 13 years old by the time I was doing my the start of my work and exactly that kind of going oh the other one I always get was things like uh, the guy off EastEnders who had um who had HIV as well and stuff like that because yes that's everybody's frame of reference for things or like the one token gay in a soap opera was, you know, other anything things. that made the tabloids really. Yeah, pretty much. If it was a headline in the Sun at some <laughs> point, I probably got asked about it and all of that. And kind of like, you know, if the odd celebrity, like obviously, like yeah, like Ellen was obviously out by the time, well before I was doing work and stuff like that. But like that was the only frames of reference that people had for gay people in the media and all of that kind of stuff. And almost now I'm a bit sort of spoilt for choices to like, where do I go next? Like, what do I do? Um, who do I talk about? And it's been a very weird situation with It's a Sin, Russell T. Davis's obviously AIDS-centred drama being on TV. Yes. Because it feels like suddenly the whole world is talking about a thing that I've been like 
working on for years and you know i know other people who've worked who worked in that sort of area as well and kind of going suddenly everyone's really interested in like telling these stories and talking about these stories but the telling thing for me with that show as well has been the sort of genuine shock from some people about the stories in it because actually not that many people in some in some areas they don't know those stories that well and for me I do obviously and it's been really interesting watching that unfold especially now because we have so many more sort of queer characters in Mm. in our tv and film and stuff like that and to sort of go oh this is people learning about that history as well which has been fascinating for me it's something at the time I think people wanted to deny any knowledge of Mm. it and you know it it was something that only affected gay people and you look at some of the headlines from then and Mm. you know they're quite revolting the attitudes people had as you say you've got things like Angels in America or other things that are very US-centric, mm-hmm. whereas actually the UK story hasn't really been addressed on that sort of level, I guess. No, exactly. And I think that's what felt really important about sort of Russell's drama for me as well, was somebody finally being given the opportunity to tell that story from a British point of view. Um, we famously sort of have one major play from from the era, which is called My Night with Reg, which is... Mm terribly British and wonderful. <laughs> um, it's very, very funny. And I, I kind of love that as a British take as well of kind of, it's a, it's sort of a living room drama. It's very funny, um, very dry sense of humour to it. But they never mention the word AIDS, even though everyone knows that's what they're talking about. Um, and so that's quite cleverly done in some respects. But there were loads of sort of very small fringe plays and things that have got lost to the ether and stuff like that. But that was the only sort of breakthrough play that got through. And then in terms of TV drama and things, you had a few soaps dealing with it in a little bit of a way, sort of like EastEnders had it. Um, I'm pretty sure things like Casualty and and all of those had, you know, shocking storylines and things like that. But nobody actually stopped and was able to tell the sort of story from the community. And I know It's a Sin has taken a good decade or more to get made because there was still a lot of resistance around not only just commissioning the thing, but sort of how it was going to be told and all of that, which I think, despite everything, despite all the improvements we've got in terms of representation, I think is really telling about the way TV still works in some some corners. Like it was really well supported by Channel 4 from, you know, from looking at how it's turned out, from looking at how they've promoted it and stuff, which is really promising. But I think the flip side of that as well is, the criticisms that people have have made of that show. Actually, for me, the important thing is sort of stepping back and going, well, the problem isn't the show. It's that we're asking one drama to tell all of these stories. And five hours of TV, or not even five hours of TV, can't do that. So actually, that's the wrong question. The question is, why aren't there 10, 15 dramas about various stories of of that era instead of waiting 15 years for for one to be made. And what is your take on representation generally within the industry in terms of characters on screen, but also the actors portraying them? Mm. It's, I mean, in terms of representation, it's getting better. And I love for the fact that there's so many streaming services and, and production companies now who are able to sort of break the traditional TV moulds and the network moulds, I think has really helped things in that sense. I know that sort of places like Netflix and things like that have become quite synonymous with a bit more freedom in what you're making, which is great. In terms of the actors portraying them, I think it's such an interesting and complicated question. Mm. And 
again, Russell T. Davis has done really good things in, in the press for It's a Sin, sort of bringing us back to that conversation. For me, I was, I had my head in this a lot when Andrew Garfield took on the role in Angels in America for the National Theatre a few years back. And he, I think he, I think it's fair to say put his foot in his mouth a few times, bless him, um, in terms of talking about learning to play a gay man. And it was so difficult because I, I'm sort of going, this comes from a good place. It comes mm. from an actor trying his best to be an ally, to be sensitive to the role that he's playing and all that. But ultimately, like Andrew saying, oh, I watched a lot of Drag Race to prepare for my role was just a little bit like, oh, did you? Did you say? Yeah, you said that. Okay, <laughs> well done. Um, and it absolutely came from a, a good place from him. Mm. But equally, you kind of go, oh, yeah, I can see why why that would upset people and why... And I hadn't given it a lot of thought until Andrew Garfield started putting his foot in his mouth around the role that I was sort of doing some research on. But it's also with to like keep with that example in Angels in America, that is a sort of iconic gay play and the iconic gay role in that play mm. is Prior Walter. And it does feel like an act of sort of almost activism to have a gay man playing that role rather than, you know, a famous actor drafted in. And he did a wonderful job as a performer. It's not about faulting someone's performance or abilities, but it's also that thing of going, what does it look like in the broader sense? So at the same time that that play was back on Broadway, there was another play called The Boys in the Band that was on um, literally one street over. And what they did was deliberately cast all gay actors in the roles, but also some quite high profile ones. So Jim Parsons from The Big Bang Theory was in it. Um, Zach Quinto, who was Mr. Spock in the new Star Trek, was in it. And through doing that, they were able to make sort of a real political statement of kind of like reclaiming gay history, you know, also shifting things to sort of say, look, we're going to give opportunities to gay actors to play gay roles and things like that which I think felt like a really important thing and felt really sort of significant when it was literally a couple of streets over from Angels in America that had that sort of, you know, minor controversy around it in that mm. sense. Um, and it's a massively difficult one because I can think of, you know, lots of examples of gay parts that I've seen on TV and film and stage that have been performed by straight actors and they've been wonderfully performed. And it's not saying that people can't do it. And it's not, you know, because then you get people saying, oh, well, it's all acting. It's all acting. I think it's more about, for me now, the wider conversation of until there's equality of representation across the board, then we should be maybe being more proactive in our putting gay actors in gay roles. Yes. And you do. I, I saw a version of Boys in the Band in London mm. a few years ago with Mark Gatiss mm. and, you know, a, a pretty much gay cast for the most mm -hmm. part and you get a palpable sense from a theatre of, of I don't know a like-minded vibe and people have shared an experience which mm. I don't think there is a, a straight equivalent for some of the paranoia maybe we experience mm -hmm. as queer teenagers growing up and all of that I, th I think that's sometimes difficult to emulate depending on the story you're telling I think it's right and I think it's true that as well it does depend on the story you're telling like there I don't ever want to be a person who comes down like completely hardline and says you can never ever like have a straight actor in you know playing a gay role but I do think there's something to be said for that experience of growing up and understanding 
in just sort of a really instinctual level where mm. the character comes from and where that experience comes from. And obviously, you're still playing a role. You know, you won't. I'm assuming that, you know, Mark Gatiss, to use that example, didn't live the exact same life as the character he was playing in The Boys in the Band. But there are elements of it that you will just you can't explain. It's a very intangible thing in that sense, kind of to try and relay to someone trying to take on that role. And I think that's where it lies. And it's also the flip side of this is so many gay actors, if they are sort of, you know, out, are denied straight parts still. And mm. we can't pretend that still isn't a thing because it absolutely is, particularly in the sort of higher profile end of things as well. And it's still a very significant thing for actors to be out and to take that gamble almost of like, does this mean things will be taken away from me? So it's about that parity of like giving those stories to gay actors as well as a sort of making up for the fact that other stories are being taken off them once they once they're out yeah I, i'm talking about sort of gay actors and gay characters and, and sort of lesbian characters i think in terms of drama it's very often focused on the lg and t mm. and actually the bisexual pansexual mm-hmm. characters tend to be forgotten in the media because i guess as you say if they're in a heterosexual relationship people think they're straight if they're in a gay relationship they're just gay or lesbian Mm. as someone who identifies as bisexual slash pansexual are there there any good examples where you've sort of recognized yourself in drama Mm. or do you think there's still a lot of work to be done in portraying bisexual pansexual characters on screen or in theater i think there's like a long long way to go in terms of in terms of that sort of representation traditionally as well like dramas particularly in theater because that's where sort of like my sort of head has always been um, theatre has been dominated in more ways than one by sort of a middle-class white gay male experience. Mm. And those are the stories that get told, which is, you know, incredibly frustrating for everyone, not just me as a sort of pansexual woman. Um, I apologise on behalf yeah. of us all. <laughs> apologise on, on behalf of, you know, the, the white The male white gay gays. males, yes. yes. <laughs> um, and it's, that's a difficult one as well, though, because I know the work a lot of that group has done as well in terms of, like, you know, helping other people get a foot in the door so I don't mean to be like too dismissive it's just that thing of kind of going yeah that's a lot of white gay stories that we've seen Mm. isn't it but equally it's that thing of going yeah people just sort of forget that the B exists in it and that traditionally on on TV as well it's always been the kind of the slutty bisexual or something like that you know it's often a girl who's just like you know it's mainly so they can show a lesbian kiss on TV or something like that. And it's, that's incredibly frustrating. Mm. Um, I think the one, the one that God, I, you know, I was in my thirties when this happened and that shouldn't, shouldn't have been the case where I sat and went, that explains it was Shit's Creek, which has become obviously massive in the last yes. year or so. I'm looking at my desktop background, which has got a picture of Dan Levy on it as well. I'm quite right too. A nerd. <laughs> um, Dan and Eugene on my desktop background here. Um, but for me, sort of the speech that David gives in that show where he talks about, I like the wine and not the label, was such a revelation of kind of going, finally someone has said it on TV and explained it in a way that isn't dismissive that doesn't reduce the experience and for me even more than that like wonderful speech that's kind of like the quippy fun line from it the thing that got me about that show was actually 
you know, David's ending up marrying a, a guy. Like, they're literally planning their wedding and he's mentioning his ex-girlfriend in a conversation and it's super mm. casual and it's super just like, oh, well, when me and my ex-girlfriend did this. And it's just not erasing that part of his identity, even though when I flip it and when I talk about that show, and I talk about that show a lot to the, to the point of boring people, even though it's really important that they showed this sort of gay romance and a happy ending for that on that show, they didn't do it by erasing a pansexual character's identity. Um, and I really love that for, for the show and just for the fact of like, all the sort of mistakes you hear about David making in his past in terms of being, in terms of like unfortunate romantic history, they weren't blamed on the fact that he was pansexual. It was just he had unfortunate taste in, you know, romantic or sexual partners. And, you know, that's a very relatable thing, whatever your sexuality as well, just like, you know, my unfortunate 20s or whatever it was type mm. attitude. And I loved that representation. And I also loved, it doesn't get talked about as much about that show, that the other sort of pansexual character you meet on, on it, Jake, is quite happily being like quite sexually fluid and dare we say a little bit slutty in his existence. But he's just sort of left to his own devices to do it. And that's fine as well. So it was sort of a nice balance of like, yeah, you can do that version of it as well. That's fine. Or yeah. you can settle down and get married. And both of them were sort of like, yeah, just get on with it. It's fine. And we just, we so need just more of that, I think. And that kind of, the idea of just showing people as people and like the sexuality element is part of a conversation but it's not the defining conversation as well is really important i think and i think you're right Shit's creek's great because you have all these characters and nobody ever questions it or challenges it mm. there's never any aggression or prejudice it's a very accepting open almost utopian society <laughs> yeah and it's that thing of um i think they've talked a lot around sort of around the show of it being a like lead by example type approach to making TV of mm. kind of going, you could have chosen to show homophobia in a small town and all of that kind of stuff, which is almost what you expect when you, when you look at sort of something like that and a setup like that. It's a bit like when you look at a soap opera setup and you kind of expect, you know, to go into that and have the, the small, small town people be like raging with pitchforks or whatever. Um, chasing people more. out of the village. Yeah. My, my mother's watched Emmerdale since I was a child. So that's the image I get in my head. <laughs> um, but actually, if you just flip it and kind of go, oh, well, you, you could just choose to live like this and everyone just sort of shrugs. The other thing I love in, in that show as well is like, David and Moira obviously dress absolutely ridiculously by any standard, <laughs> but nobody ever says anything. They just sort of, you know, other than that's it being an inappropriate, you know, pair of high heels for walking across a field or whatever. It's just kind of like, yeah, whatever, get on with it. And I think that's a very sort of queer thing to hang on to as well. The idea of being able to just dress how you feel like and not have people comment or care is, is sort of the dream in some ways. And also the idea of you just get so much more done in life if people weren't getting hung up on who you were dating or what you were wearing, which is a lovely idea as well. Is there anything you think uh, is particularly important and people should seek out? Oh, wow. That's like, that's a huge question. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Shit's Creek, obviously. Yeah, obviously. I mean, that's, I've, I've become basically evangelical about it at this point, <laughs> um, telling people that they should, should watch that show just for the idea of, 
exactly that of kind of like, well, what if we chose to live our lives like this? What if we chose to be accepting and all of those kinds of things? And also just it's charming and funny and lovely, which we need more of. Oh, absolutely. And also a happy story involving queer people, which is equally important. Mm. Think as well, I am really fond of telling people know your history, which I think particularly as now we're getting loads of really cool new queer stuff and kind of lots of stuff aimed at sort of younger audiences and all of that. I would love people to go back to Queer as Folk, the the sort of British original version as well and things like that and kind Mm. of go, this is the story that we, we told, you know, 22 years ago now. And while some of it might not be completely politically correct anymore, it might not be the experience people have anymore. I think that's important for people to know and to see and particularly stuff like that that came out when maybe it was more difficult to access sort of a lot of um, a lot of gay things and a lot of sort of stories like that. I think things like that are really important. And I also think things like as we've been talking about like AIDS and It's a Sin and all of that recently as well, like going back to a lot of the stuff that was written at the time as part of that knowing your history is really important because not just for sort of gay men's stories, but like the queer community being sort of galvanised and in forms of activism and caring for each other and all of that kind of thing were really sort of formative in how things have changed moving forward and also that we could learn a lot from and I do tell people to go and watch Angels in America obviously because it's it's been a huge part of my life and and all of those kinds of things but also because I think it was a bit of a turning point in in gay stories and sort of you know it won the Pulitzer Prize it was on Broadway it's a seven and a half hour play about gay men and AIDS like that doesn't feel like it should have been a thing in the 90s that it should have been so critically regarded but also it's a fantastic piece of drama which is also what's important because as much as it's known for being the AIDS play and all of that it's also a piece of like incredibly political writing incredibly beautiful writing all of those things which again are sort of important in terms of revisiting stories and and all of those things and finally just to wrap up how long do you think it took you to sort of become comfortable with your identity and and has your academic work sort of helped you understand yourself in any particular way that you wouldn't have expected yeah absolutely I think as I said earlier by the time I'd started sort of doing the academic work in a sort of particularly serious way by the time I'd sort of finished my PhD and whatnot it was unavoidable to be out in a general sense um particularly if even if you're being asked like oh what are you working on or where are you working like it sort of comes out pardon the pun then (laughs) you know you get a bit of a funny look if you tell people you're writing about gay theatre and you know you sort of feel like you end up explaining yourself a bit but I think doing that work really helped me to understand myself a lot because, as, as we've said, I read so broadly as much as I was just sort of writing on AIDS plays. I was reading and writing, you know, all around the, the subject and across various decades as well, which I think really helped and sort of really helped me to figure out where I fit into that community, if at all, and where I did and didn't fit in and all of that. But I think it was a really slow process, even after finishing the PhD, of kind of getting comfortable with talking about myself in relation to that work as Mm. well. But it gave me a sort of a way to do that, I think. But then aside from that, I think a lot of us have found, and I know I've talked to other sort of queer people, in this last year of weirdness of being locked away from society... Actually, I genuinely think I've become more queer in this time. I don't mm. know if it was possible, but I think 
more just embracing certain things because you're not having to play straight in any context because we've literally been locked away from the world. But I often found myself, I've been, you know, fortunate or unfortunate to move around jobs a lot in terms of having a lot of fixed term contracts. And it's that thing again of kind of going, oh, well, it's easier to sort of play along and be sort of straight for argument's sake in an office or not bother to be as, you know, waving your rainbow flag as often as you might like, because it's sometimes just not worth the drama. But because I've not had to pretend for a year, I Mm. think I've leaned into it a lot more and kind of, you know, I've I've been joking that I'm going to come out of lockdown like dressed in head to toe rainbows or something because I've just (laughs) become that gay in this sort of intervening process. But also just having time to consume a lot more media and books and things like that than we normally would and have maybe just leaned into sort of reading a lot more LGBTQ plus work or consuming a lot more of that in terms of TV and film just because the luxury of time to do that because we can't go out anywhere has also helped I think because it's kind of like all those things you've always meant to watch or read and all that kind of stuff and yeah and I think I've taught a lot of LGBTQ literature courses and um, like done talks and stuff over Zoom in the last year. And I think it's just through sheer force of will of talking about it all the time has just made me embrace it even more. Brilliant. Thank you so, so much for chatting with me today. It's been absolutely fascinating. And uh, that's been lovely. Thank you for talking so openly. That's right. It was lovely to chat with Emily. Huge thanks again for finding the time to talk with me. And thanks again to all our listeners who've been interacting with us on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us now at Queer to Eternity. We're halfway through our series, six episodes down, with six more contributors still to come. So keep an eye out for the next episode due next week, and hopefully you'll hear more from us very soon. S-Pod thing. The podcast revisiting S-Club 7's insane TV show. Yeah, I can't imagine anyone's binge-watched this. Anyone who's not on drugs. <laughs> Thank you for bringing this into my life. Uh, it was honestly <laughs> truly appalling. Guests help me analyse the show in more detail than anyone ever asked for. It feels weird to me to say the phrase sex object in a show that <laughs> was aimed at six-year-olds. Do you think, do you think this is one of the problems with this show is that seven is too much? It's an S-Pod thing from Great Big Owl. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.